Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 421.5, recorded on Sunday, September 17th, 2023. 3D printing again, I'm Joe. Fighting City Hall, I'm Bill. Don't know if I'm coming or going, I'm Majid. More of a cyborg every day, I'm Eric. I'm Dale, and I have been driven crazy. In our innards section, we're joined by Dale, who will take us back on the desktop uh, journey. And finally, the <laughs> feedback and a couple of suggestions. We'll move on to the Linux innards. Uh, this week, we have a uh, continuation, if you will, of the history of the desktop brought to you by yours, yours truly, Dale, ours truly. Um, take it away, Dale. Well, this is my second article that I wrote quite a It's probably been going on maybe a year or two ago, if not more. It was uh, called the Early Graphical User Interfaces, and I have uh, a link in the show notes for it. And my uh, first article was discussed in episode 411 of Mintcast. I have a link for that in the show notes. And it was called The Origins of the Graphical User Interface. Now, uh, to start this one off, we had already gone through the uh, beginnings of the inventions of the computers up until the uh, end of the 1960s. So we started about 1950s and now we're getting into the into the decade of the 70s and a lot had changed in the in the 70s uh, a lot of the things that people learned didn't work did work could work better and um, collaboration which is uh, always good we don't have that so much now. It's more of an internal company collaboration instead of multiple, you know, companies. So, one of the things that they uh, they used for interfacing with a computer is what they call a corded key set. Looks like a small piano and functions similarly. It has about five keys. And using the combination of which keys were pressed at the same time would perform different functions. And I think Bill can show a picture from my article. Um, it should be at the top of the article. <clears throat> As you can see, it's got the uh, uh, the five keys, and it I think it connected in with a uh, a serial connection. It looks like uh, it's the, what I'm assuming. And it's kind of uh, interesting, the videos that I watched, it was pretty much a similar uh, workflow that a lot of us have, where we will press like control and, and shift and use the scroll wheels on our mice and, and, and things like that. So it was kind of revolutionary back then. 
um, today. Here's, I still think. Here's the device he's talking about. I got it up on the screen now. The it's <laughs> it's interesting. It's a combination of uh, several finger switches that do various things, as Dale was describing. Yeah, it's the see the proficiency at some of these people using in these YouTube videos. It's like I said, it's basically just like us doing the other with the current you know control alt and other key combinations. Now, the keyboards in that era actually had keys for the commonly used commands that we would have today, like doing control uh, C. Uh, copies, control Z, undoes, control X, you know, cuts, and the other, you know, um, keyboard shortcuts that, that we use um, were actually physical keys. And I don't have an image of that, but if you want to see what I'm talking about, um, you just you can go into your favorite search engine and type in Alto, A L T O. And the second word would be keyboard, and you'll see the uh, the keys. It's uh, pretty much like uh, copy, move, undo, where physical keys on the outside edges of the uh, of the uh, keyboards, and you would actually um, use that in combination with the mouse and. Uh, to uh, do the similar things that we would do on a modern uh, modern computer. Now, there's a very important company in this uh, in this innovation, and it was part of Xerox, which was mostly known for printing technology, going back to the 50s. Uh, back to like the line printers, where you actually had paper and they had the uh, some like little. Um, zipping noise you'd hear. Uh, so they uh, realized, well, there's a little foreshadowing. The executives didn't really see this, but the people that were developing stuff saw the importance of the computers more so than what the executives did back in New York. The, the uh, executives in New York, where Xerox was headquartered, New York State, uh, created the Palo Alto Research Center, which was in Palo Alto, California, and they abbreviated it as PARC. So if you ever hear a lot of historians that talk about Xerox PARC, um, that's what they're referring to. And they are known for a lot of things. It is mind-blowing, the amount of things that this group, and I don't know how many were, I don't know what the official head count was in park, but I'm going to say probably 30, 40 people, if not more. And they were responsible for creating the GUI, laser printers. They also created line printers, the old dot matrix printers, and <clears throat> bitmap graphics and ethernet, though I believe it was Bill Joy, I think he improved upon it. Um, I think he was the original creator of, uh, of the Ethernet, and I think he may have spent some time at Xerox Park, but that's just going on my, on my memory. It could be a false memory. And those are just a few to name the name, uh, just to name a few of the inventions. 
Uh, Park was founded in 1969, like I said, it's a research and development division of Xerox Corporation. Now, in my previous article, we had the mother of all inventions, which was a demonstration by the NLS project headed by Douglas Engelbart. And, well, when that kind of disbanded, I guess people started leaving because of infighting, disagreements with, you know, how one group wants to do something and another group wants to do another thing. Uh, A lot of the uh, members of NLS joined PARC. So a lot of their knowledge and experience helped uh, Xerox in that respect. Now, through all of their efforts, the Alto was the first computer designed with a GUI. This is what they've been working on many years to uh, create. It was released on the 1st of March 1973. It was not commercially available. It was only used by researchers at private companies or universities. Many of the ideas from the NLS project were used in the ALTO. That's it's spelled A-L-T-O. Some call it the first personal computer, though it was a small mini-computer and not something that a person would want in their home. For comparison, this is about the size of a washing machine. And I don't know about the power requirements, but that could have been an issue too because um, a lot of these machines, I wouldn't be surprised if they were 240, 270 volts, which is common in a lot of the uh, European and UK uh, countries. But here we uh, settled on the uh, 110, 120 uh, standard, which we use the uh, 220 for uh, furnaces and other things like that. So I guess you could say it was the first personal computer because you could sit at it your at your own. You weren't sharing things with other other people. It had a TTL-based CPU at 5.88 megahertz with 128 kilobits or kilobytes, rather, of memory. That's, you know, a lot back then. Today, not even a rounding error. So, just to put it in perspective, um, most computers you'd buy in the store have 8 billion bytes of memory. So, it also has a 2.5 megabyte cartridge storage. It's sort of like a hard drive. Uh, the resolution of the monitor was 606 by 808 in a portrait orientation, so it was more skinny and more taller. A keyboard, a three-button mouse, an accorded key set, and Ethernet. And uh, you can build and scroll down the uh, the article there. You'll get to see what the uh, what the Alto looked like. And you can see they don't have in the in this picture that I put on my article. They didn't have the the corded key set on view, but they do have the three button mouse. And uh, really, uh, I might mention this later in my uh, my talk here. But the corded key set really wasn't well received because of uh, 
pretty much like playing a piano where you have to do this function. You have to remember to press one and two and click here or pressing the third and fourth one and click here. And, you know, like I said, this, you have to remember this whole thing was brand new to people to begin with. So it was this, uh, not well received. The, uh, the OS was called Alto OS. It would boot to a text mode and you would type in the name of the application you wanted to use. Then it would open to a full GUI application. Once you were done with that application, you would exit and it would go back to what we would consider the terminal or in Windows, you know, the command prompt. From there, you would open another application and, you know, that's how it functioned. There was no multitasking of the applications. You pretty much opened the uh, text editor and that's all you did and then exited. You wanted to check your mail, your email. You would have to load up the email and then exit and do something else. The uh, applications, let's see, where, where was I here? Okay, this new GUI was referred to as WYSIWYG which is a W-Y-S-I-W-Y-G. It stands for what you see is what you get. And uh, there is some dispute over the first use of the name. I'm going with the uh, 1974 release of Bravo to use this new GUI. There was some other print um, um, versions of this, but it wasn't really... Uh, meant towards computers, so a, it wasn't an original abbreviation, but uh, it was new to be applied to a, you know, a computer. The applications that you would have on the Alto OS was uh, Brave, or not Brave, it was Bravo. It was a text editor. Gypsy. It was an updated version of Bravo. Laurel and Hardy. It was an email program. SIL, S-I-L, is a vector graphics program for like engineering drawings and, and, and such. Markup was a bitmap editor. And Draw was a graphical editor. It was also um, sort of like, like Visio type, uh, if you ever use those type of uh, design programs on Windows. There wasn't any spreadsheet or database software at that time. Those were would come out later in the in the decade. In 1977, Xerox began developing their first commercially available GUI computer based on the Alto, called the Xerox Star. The Alto II was used to design and develop the Star. Now, the Alto II was not really released. It, just like the Alto um, was itself, it was more of an internal development platform. Pretty much as they used the term dog fooding, they fixed the things that they needed fixed to be able to use it better. But I can't guarantee that none of the Alto 2s left Park to be used by others. Pilot was the uh, name of the new operating system that replaced the Alto OS on the uh, star line of uh, computers. It was a single-user multitasking operating system. 
instead of booting to a terminal interface, you booted to a GUI where you would enter your username and password. So basically, when you watch the uh, the videos, it basically is like your uh, computer now, where you log into your desktop, you know, today. This is the uh, first use of what we would call desktop icons. The idea behind these was based on an office metaphor. For example, documents are displayed as folders. You would have, you know, the trash can or the rubbish bin for uh, deleting files, you know, uh, stuff like that. An example of how you would move one document to another folder, you would click the document and press the move key on the keyboard. It would be an actual move, you know, key, key labeled move. Locate the folder you want to move to and click it with the mouse pointer. And that was how you uh, uh, moved it. Now, uh, there was a video that I wanted uh, Bill to play. And this is uh, the uh, Gypsy Editor running on an alto by uh, Larry Tesler. He was one of the uh, co-developers along with Tim Mott. And he'll show you uh, okay. so key how concept. it works. And then he actually has a chord key set the in the video. We and the alt the lines keyboard of a and the three button mouse. Now let's say we want to move that. Uh, we can cut. And when we cut, the text that you delete goes in the wastebasket. So this is like the clipboard of cut, cut and paste implementations today. At Apple, we changed the name from wastebasket to clipboard. And that's stuck throughout the industry. Now that we've cut it, we can move it to another place. So I can delete paragraph break and say so go down here and paste so I just pasted a bunch of copies if I wanted to I could have just pasted one copy and that would be equivalent to saying copy paste today uh, but I, just, I kept pasting, and so that's why there's more than one copy. So there, if somebody says copy and paste, and cut, copy and paste, uh, came from Gypsy, you now saw what it was in that, at that time. I couldn't hear any of the audio on that. Well, unfortunately, I don't have a good way of doing it on here without Video Ninja. Uh, let me try it. Well, at least... You have a. It, it should have gone out to the to the YouTube, since you have your desktop audio going there. Problem is, is that I think you're just showing your face. Can you see the big image? Well, I see it says watch stream. Oh, a Londoner said they heard it just fine on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. I checked on YouTube. I dialed it back a little bit, and I can see that it did work just fine there. So that that that's good. That's Maybe good. it's because I had my. You no, want it's good enough. I had my microphone muted at the same time. Maybe it needs that open. No. Uh, maybe for maybe for us to hear it, but yeah. not for the YouTube stream. Right. Okay. Okay. I'll keep that in mind. All right. Well, in my article, there is also a uh, 
a video and they're much longer than, um, they're like 14, 15, uh, 14, 15, 20 minutes long. But I have another video of, uh, the Laurel and Hardy email by, uh, Doug Broths, who is the developer of the, uh, of the software. And then there was another video of, uh, Bravo where, uh, Charles, this is where we need Moss here to pronounce this. Charles Seminole Lee and Tom Malloy. Uh, they were the developers. And if my memory serves me correctly, I think Charles actually went on to work at Microsoft and was one of the people responsible for making Microsoft Word. Now, Let's see where this is a very important part of history that changed the direction of the GUI. It has been misunderstood ever since. All of the other computing systems at that time were text-based, while some graphical applications. All input was done via the keyboard, and the use of the mouse was still non-existent. The, uh, the light pens I mentioned in my previous article were used, but not as commonly. More interaction with the computer was done via the keyboard. Apple had uh, more success with the Apple I and Apple II series computers using the text interface. In 1978, the Apple III was the next model using the text-based interface. Apple was also developing a new computer in the same year called the Lisa. It was also originally another text-based interface, but the goal was to make it more modern. This was a year after initial development when Steve was shown the Alto. And uh, I'm going to talk about that uh, interaction that they had, because this is... Uh, um, that's really that part where I said it, that was a bad cut and paste thing with it had been misunderstood ever since. What had been misunderstood ever since was this whole meeting of Steve Jobs visiting Park. And a lot of people think and believe that Jobs stole this idea from Park. And... I guess if you want to mince words, you could say he stole, but not in the um, legal sense. He did everything on, on the board because at that time, Apple was an established company by the time this was all released. But, you know, because this is going in past this article into the, into the uh, early 80s. And this was in 1979. And they had, uh, like I said, already had the star in 77. And they had some subsequent models that I didn't mention for the sake of brevity here. And what um, happened, the uh, short version of the story, was like I said, a lot of these people were co um, collaborating. And... They hadn't gotten to the point where they had uh, intellectual property spying and that this is what came in into the 1980s. And a lot of the uh, Apple people had friends that worked at Park. Uh, 
and they would discuss all these things that they, they were doing, and they were intrigued, and they saw some of the stuff firsthand. And they told Steve, Steve, you got to see this. You, you, you got to see this. This is mind-blowing. And Steve, at this point, was not so much involved in that part of the company. He was more in the business side of things, making marketing deals, doing this and doing that. So he was too busy for that. Finally, they convinced him to drive over there, which really wasn't far because they went from um, Cupertino to uh, the Menlo Park area. It was, in California, I mean, with the traffic, I don't know what the traffic would be like back in the 70s, but it was probably a half hour, you know, hour drive away. So he visited Park and they showed him all the things, you know, the keyboard, the corded key set, small talk, which was a development platform, you know, a programming language. And they uh, showed him the Alto OS, and that's the thing that mesmerized him, was the ability of moving windows around and and uh, clicking on things. And so what Steve Jobs did was he contacted the Xerox executives, and this is where it does get kind of um, dicey when he's saying that they were... Um, he stole it is because even though they were selling the stars, they still didn't see the value add of the graphical interface. They were selling them with these laser printers and they were like document printing centers. And they mostly thought of it as like an appliance. They didn't really think of it. They were more wanting to sell the printers and stuff. So when Steve Jobs went to the uh, the executives and made a deal, he said, well, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch your back. And they did some of the legal paperwork where they invested in, in uh, each other's companies. And he said, in exchange, I want some uh, access to what you're doing with the Alto and, and, and the other systems. And so they agreed. Now... A lot of the people in Park were not happy about this. I don't want you to think that this was all kumbaya, come in here. Look at everything we've spent a decade developing, and you can take it. So there were um, some people that, you know, that were very willing to, uh, to help them out. But there were some saw the writing on the wall and thought, this is not going to go well because they know that their executives were tone deaf to the whole whole system. And they knew that it was going to die on the vine. And they knew that um, Steve was going to run with it. And as you can see with Apple, he did. And, and the further uh, Macintosh, which is what replaced the uh, original Apples. So that uh, pretty much sums up the uh the history here of the uh of the whole uh GUI progression um you can uh use the uh, link in the uh, show notes to view my whole article because it goes into much more specific detail of uh 
of what transpired and uh, the videos really help out. So if anyone has any uh, thing they want to discuss. It's all really interesting. Of course, I'm sure you've probably got more to, this could probably go on and on and on for a while. So we'll no doubt have you back to continue on with this history. Um, these are some of these systems you talked about today. I'd never even heard of. Um, and I was alive for a lot of that. So yeah. it just, that Alto, I'd, I'd seen things like it, but, uh, you know, not quite. It looked like something out of a '60s movie, didn't it? So. Yeah, a couple of interesting things. The the idea that you know none of this existed, and then suddenly it did, or at least none of it had been combined in a way that was coherent the way this was, and uh, and then also the misguidance of like, well, this is a value add to sell our printers. I've seen that you know over and over with companies who come up with something where they're like. You know, we're, we're, well, no, that's just something to help us, you know, boost the sales on this. And you think, no, that, that's, that's a commodity. That's not even important. Like this is the cool part. So, um, yeah, that just the idea that the right people were in the right place with the right amount of funding and the right amount of freedom and the right amount of, you know, just for all of that to come together. And yeah, the fact that someone like jobs could come in there and just be like, sweet talk the, the executives and say, well, this is really interesting. You mind if I take a look around and the <laughs> engineers are going, no, no, what are you doing? Uh, yeah. Uh, and and so goes, many uh, of the, the GUI things that we've come, well, we've come to take for granted these days. And, you know, every now and then I think to myself, I wonder how they came up with that idea. And then, and then you see something like this and you can see a, a much more rudimentary uh, way of doing that same thing that we've you know kind of taken for granted or we've we've been using for a long time and it's interesting that even back then you know they kind of they kind of had it figured out it just took a while to put the polish on it i guess the first so. time i ever heard of the alto i still remember actually i must have been about 11 12 years old and i was just getting into I was actually I was younger than that, maybe about seven or eight, and I was getting into computers and I wanted to learn more about them. So I, I'd gone to a, I used to go to our local library, and you know pick up books and whatever. And there was a whole bunch of books on computing and graphical user interfaces, and they were obviously a couple of years out of date. I mean, I'm talking about late 80s, but these were books from like the late 70s and early 80s. And I remember reading about the Alto Bed. So it's um. Yeah, it's, yeah, it is interesting how far we've come, but at the same time, how far we haven't changed, in a sense. The basics are still the same. Yeah. To, to show you how tone deaf, and like a head-slapping moment from the executives at Xerox is, like I said, they did release, and I can't remember like the model numbers off, off the top of my head, I think, um, to know which ones were the graphical and which ones were the uh, were the uh, text ones. Let's see, twenty. Uh, let's see. I just I have my article up here on another browser or browser window. But in any case, they had like the Alto eight twenty, and then they had subsequent you know models after that. And the head slapping moment was okay. The engineers were like okay. They got it. They under 
understand what we did. This is the future. We have these document centers where a person wants to typesetting. It's at the early stages of typesetting a, a document, like if, you know, the first Microsoft Word type of thing, where they could print it out and print out hundreds of copies of it. They don't have to do a typesetting machine anymore. They said, it's brilliant. And it's all WYSIWYG. And the salesmen were just like, yeah, you just click here, click here. And they were just going out the doors. Well, the executives go, wow, you're onto something here. That's really selling well. Okay, this is the head-slapping moment. Computers are useful. Who'd have thunk it? Engineers, let's make ones that we want to compete with the Amiga, the Commodore, the Apple III, what's it ever made, you know. It did make the, the uh, day, or what's that phrase? The uh, it, it did say daylight. Um, the, you know, the Macintosh. We want to compete with that. So we want you to, and they said, and so they went on development and then they said, then IBM said, Hey, we want a piece of this too, but they weren't into the graphical. They did everything text-based and it was graphical applications, but it was sort of like how the Alto was in 73 where you load up an application, you're done with it. You load up another application, you move the mouse around, you're done with it type of thing. And these document stations were multitasking. You could have multiple documents open. You can click and click and do all this. You know what they did? They said, well, IBM's the big name in computing, so we want to compete with them. And this is the head-slapping moment. The engineers were like, oi! You want us to build text-based computers to compete with Apple and Commodore and Amiga when you've got this multitasking <laughs> graphical operating system controlling your printers and you want people to buy these text-based computers. And then, you know, the, the other part of the story is by that time, Bill Gates had seen... because. The other thing I wanted to point out is Steve uh, Steve Jobs wasn't the only one to see this. There were many people that were in the doors of, of Park Engineering Department there. But Steve Jobs was was the first, or among you know, among the first there. Because Bill Gates, you know, created Windows, Windows three point or one point rather. And he made that deal with IBM to sell it on their computers because he's the he's the one that came up with the idea of licensing because uh you back before then you bought the software and it's yours do whatever you want have fun with it gates was the one that thought no that's my software i'll let you use it but you can't do anything with my software so yeah well i feel like we could spend hours on this but Alas, we need to move on. Yep. Um, moving on to vibrations from the ether. We had uh, two emails, both from Henrik Hemron. Um, 
he noticed that we had asked for some feedback on, on show ideas, and his first email says, Hello, Mintcast hosts. A suggestion for any coming episode. Linux Mint is a relatively bug-free and open-source software. It has financial income from sponsors as well as donations. But I know very little how the development and maintenance is managed. How many are working on Linux Mint? Are some full-time working with salary? How many? Or part-time work for Linux Mint but still paid? Mixed between paid and volunteers? Or is everyone working at their leisure time without payment? How are tasks shared between developers? I know very little about how Linux Mint works. It would be very interesting to hear some about it. If one of the developers could be a guest, so much the better. Regards, Henrik. I agree with you, Henrik. It would be nice to know those things. I couldn't tell you. So yeah, um, we will see if we can get somebody on. If there's anybody from Linux Mint that listens to the show... Um, Clem, if you're listening, send a developer here to spend a couple hours with us for an interview. But, um, yeah, I, I could not begin to answer those questions and I find it interesting. Anybody else? Nope. Okay. Um, do you want me to read the next one or do you want to do it? Oh, okay. So he sent another email. Um, hello, Mintcast team regarding mobile devices. One, Termux. This is an app and more for Android. I have installed it on my uh, slash E slash OS mobile phone. Slash E slash OS is based on open Android and lineage, but I have not really used it yet. Termux is interesting, and I will be happy to hear your experience or else share this info. Uh, yes, I use Termux. I, me too. I, it is invaluable to me if I have any... Um, server admin work to do back here at home and I'm on the road I can wire guard into this network SSH you've got all it, it but Termux for people that don't know it's not just a terminal it's actually an entire uh, user space that operates in kind of a container on your Android device and it gives you Linux tools uh, on your phone to do everything from SSH to I mean you got nano and it's got... Yeah, he it, actually mentions that in his email. Yeah. Okay, so Termux... Okay, yeah. Termux, uh, Termux is an Android terminal emulator and Linux environment app that works directly with no rooting or setup required. A minimal base system is installed automatically. Additional packages are available using the apt package manager. Uh, beside SSH, I know it can be used for editing with Nano. <laughs> it's as if I read it. Um, or them. But also a lot more. Uh, one application is PR root or pROOT. The main purpose of pROOT is to run the Linux distribution inside Termux without having to root device. When pROOT is installed, these distributions can be installed. Uh, Alpine Linux, Arch Linux, Arch Linux 32, Arch Linux ARM, Debian Stable, Fedora 35, uh, Manjaro ARCH64, OpenSUSE Tumbleweed, Ubuntu 22.04, Void Linux, and there's a link uh, in the show notes. For a wiki? Yeah, for a wiki. Finally, an article about Termux. There is uh, another link in the show notes. Yeah, and I do want to mention here that I, 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 I have used uh, Termux, and I've also used it for, you know, installing a, a VM and then interacting with that VM. So you use it to get into the VM to set things up so that you can then turn around 
and uh, VNC into the VM on your Android device. Uh, does it work well? Well, the Termux does, but the whole uh, e emulating um, Linux on an Android device still has a ways to go as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, Termux is definitely useful. Yeah. Uh, and then he goes on to write uh, the Vala phone. Vala HW is manufactured in Germany by Gigaset. The HW is, to my understanding, identical or almost identical to Gigaset own Android phones. Vala sell their phones from their own website installed with Vala OS based on Android, but it can also be shipped with Ubuntu Touch. Vala OS has multi-boot support, so it should be easy to add Ubuntu Touch and some other OS in addition to Vala OS. If you live in Denmark, it is possible to buy a Vala from Linux Nordic or uh, with either Vala OS, Ubuntu Touch, Sailfish, Dryden, Manjaro, or Nemo Mobile. Dryden is, is based on Debian and Nemo on Manjaro. Vala does not have any 5G phones and may not be the very latest technology, but I consider they are interesting both with their own Android variant, but not the least with Linux, although I have no experience. Regards, Henrik Hemren. Uh, thank you for that That's email. Cool. Always. So, I've thought, so I've thought about trying Vala, actually. Um I think it. Am I right in saying that it? Um, there's a there's a, like a list of devices which it works on, um, and some of them are Sony devices. Or am I getting that mixed up with Selfish? Uh, I think uh, dog. Joe's our pro on that. I'm sorry. What was the question? No, I'm saying. Uh, am I right in saying that with, when it comes to Vola, it um, it mainly works on Sony devices. Those are like you know you can buy actual Sony uh, Xperia's with it on. I'm sure I remember that from a couple of years ago. I I am not familiar with Vola at all, so I can't okay. tell you. Okay, I've said now, it before. From what what you're reading here, I understand that there is a Vola OS as well. Uh, I don't know what you can install that on. I don't know if it will go on the Pine phone, which would be interesting. But um, it looks like they have their own hardware too, so. I find it interesting that a lot of these um, OSs, whether we're talking kind of like uh, more privacy or security focused Android, you know, like Graphene or EOS, or some of the, the Linux distros like Ubuntu Touch, they all seem to work best on pixels. It's, I find that slightly ironic, That's really. counterintuitive, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is, I know. But, um, I mean, I don't know if it's because... Um, I mean, I know it's not the same as the Nexus program because the Nexus program was really a developer kit, really, wasn't it? Kind of uh, showcase, you know, they weren't ever decided for mass adoption. So I don't know if it's like a hangover from that, that it's, if you develop for on a Pixel, you know that it will work on most Android devices. I don't know if that's the reason. And so that's why it then becomes easier to port either different Android distributions or different Linux distributions to it. Uh, if anybody knows why, then, you know, let us know. 
I would really be interested to see some real uh, news in this space because a few years ago it seemed like there was a lot going on in the mobile space and then it just seems to have tapered off into nearly nothing in the last couple of years. And I, I sp- mean, if I want to be honest about it, and you know, I am a man who loves my phones and loves all the different versions of Android and stuff like that, the battle has finished. You know, iOS and Android became a duopoly about five years ago, and that's it. Now, the only different, and even the different Android skins have, I wouldn't say merged, but they've become a lot more similar. You know, Oxygen OS on the OnePlus devices looks a lot more like the Pixel. Uh, Samsung's, yes, it does look different, but again, it, you know, it has the material, you kind of design and aesthetic. Um, I mean, and I remember maybe, what, 10 years ago, you had, you know, Windows Phone, you had Butter, you had Firefox, um, all these kinds of different uh, things. Yes. And it was, it was exciting times in that sense. But I mean, I suppose it's, you know, if you're going to make an analogy, it's the analogy of, you know, with PCs, desktops, and uh, laptops, for example, you know, in the 80s, you had lots of different operating systems working on different hardware, um, you know, Apple, Atari, Commodore, Amiga, things like that. Um, and then it then bec- it all kind of solidified into Windows uh, due to, yeah. par- partly due to Windows's um, Microsoft's monopolistic practices, but with this kind of um, significant, and I, I, it's probably growing actually, uh, Mac OS um, section and, a Linux bit, which has always stayed the same, and you know it. You know it's have a much. Uh, it's become a meme now, hasn't it? This will be the year of the Linux desktop. You know, it's not going to you know, happen, the, is it? Really. The, the thing with phones, though, is it's an all-or-nothing proposition. You know, you can have a phone, and there are lots of phone-sized devices that have a lot of characteristics of a phone: touchscreen, you know, small UI that you can you can use. But unless you can control the radios and access the radios that you need to to be able to use cellular networks, and unless you have that stable platform where if you create an app for like a banking institution, a financial institution that they trust, you know, that app to access their systems, until you can bring an entire fully baked project to market, it's not going to work. I mean, in, otherwise, it's just a hobby or a toy or a experiment mm. or a technical exercise. It's not really an actual alternative. Mm. No, you're right. You're right about that. So, um, and that that but, is but, a hell of an uphill climb for anyone to take on at this point. I mean, yeah. Well, how do you I mean, even, I mean, well, you even look up, even look at Windows. Windows. Yeah, yeah. I right. mean, Microsoft. Microsoft is just the best example for this in both whether it's mobile or even in browsers you can use the same argument for browsers as well that you know when it came against the might of the established players it even with all the billions it had to at its disposal the fact that it had a, a hardware arm which it had just completely bought lock stock and barrel in in nokia and they still couldn't make a success of it then yeah. you know how is a how are a bunch of um, open source dudes with the best of intentions, going to manage. 
Yeah, well, Windows I mean, couldn't even maintain the, their their mobile OS, and they had a fairly decent one. And honestly, they got into the game earlier than than most people because they started out with um, other handhelds before phones. Yeah, they know, had PDAs. Windows CE, didn't they? The PDAs, yeah. yeah. So, but they just kind of rested on their laurels for a little bit in the whole phone space, and then got blown out of the water by. Android and uh, Apple. So, well, and you had this pro- proliferation of devices, like you mentioned in the '80s, where <clears throat> there were different devices focused on different use cases, and you know, blue Blackberries with their, uh, you know, keyboards. And I remember executives I worked with were like, y- "You can pry this from my cold dead hand." Yet here they were a few years later with a smartphone because that was just the way the wind was blowing, and it pushed. The smartphone worked because it was general purpose enough that it could fit all of those different use cases with touchscreens. And then if you needed some sort of an accessory, you know, like think about taking payments, mobile payments, you just have the card swiper, you know, it took over the, the entire market for mobile because it was so easy to, you know, to adapt to all those different things. But prior to that, and like Joe's saying, Microsoft had a ton of mobile devices, but they weren't a smartphone. They, you know, and think back to the PDAs and you had all of these mobile technological devices or technology devices that, you know, were literally just completely superseded by the smartphone. Now there's still devices out there that, you know, special purpose devices that do something better than a smartphone can because it's still too generic. But by and large, I think that's what we've seen. And because of that, then it boiled it down to just these two players. And, you know, I just, without some actual paradigm shift in either how we interact with devices or the construction of the devices or, you know, the way the internet works or some major change I think is going to have to take place for there to, to, for this to be, you know, fundamentally set off kilter to where, okay, the smartphone is no longer the predominant way that we as a species interact with, you know, technology because it right now it basically is. And there are two players and really nothing seems to be able to challenge that. Yeah. And then you brought up BlackBerry and they made the same mistake um, that, that windows made by resting on their laurels. Yes. There were a few diehard people that were, I need this hard keyboard. I need this hard keyboard. And they were quality keyboards, but the market shifted and BlackBerry didn't. So yeah, they fell out of that game almost entirely. I I think they're running Android now, or do they even make devices anymore? Um, So BlackBerry themselves don't make any devices, but their name is licensed out. TCL has made BlackBerry devices running Android. Um, They have not been as successful as um people thought should we put it that way so um research in motion the company behind blackberry still exist and they do loads of networking kind of stuff apparently at the back end of stuff um but yeah i mean i remember actually when a couple of those blackberry phones came out key one key two the passport with the um with the keyboards and there was a lot of people on you know, a lot of tech YouTubers loving it, saying how great it was and stuff like that. Um, I, I've realized, and I've watched a lot of tech YouTube that tech YouTubers are not 
reflective of general population. Now that might sound really obvious, but the kind of preferences that people like, say, MKVHD or Mr. Mobile or some of the other people have are not what normies have. There are, you know, there are some people that really miss having a physical keyboard, but it's not that much and it's not enough to sustain a business and a business model. Similarly, you know, you hear lots of people talking about that, how they want a small phone and, you know, isn't, you know, uh, big phones are too unwieldy at X, Y, Z. But the data shows that given the choice, normies will choose a big, cheap screen. Right. Um, and that's why all the mini phones, I mean, I remember there was the, the Sony, Sony used to have the Z compact range. Um, there's been more recently the iPhone minis, um, Asus Zen phones, all have been, you know, mini phones and, you yeah. know, and nearly all of them have been discontinued due to lack of sales. Right now In you cannot mini- find a small phone and I have looked, but yeah. you cannot find a decent quality, like four inch screen 3.8 and yeah you can't do it they don't they don't get made so yeah because it's not a viable business model um and that's the same thing with these uh you know the 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 uh regenerations of blackberry or whatever that we get it's you know it gets people on the internet people like us probably excited but it's not enough to it's a it's a cutthroat uh market out there people are on apart from apple everybody else is on razor thin margins with a lot of this stuff. Um, so uh, I, I have a feeling that as phones become more and more of an appliance, more and more of just a way of living, you know, it becomes like your washing machine or your dishwasher or whatever, um, innovation will slow. It's just natural, I think, because there's no incentive to, because if anybody, like even foldables, right? Um We've been having folding phones for what five years now, and it's yeah, still relatively niche. Yes, you do see them, not denying that, but again, it is relatively, you know, small numbers. You know, they haven't kicked off in the same way, um, which I find kind of surprising, especially with like the fold, considering that people do like larger screens, but also so the, the ability th- to fit it in their pocket. Yeah, I think, but it's Apple two thousand dollars. Yeah, and yeah, that's yeah they're expensive and they break. Yeah, yeah. and that's really expensive. the problem. Expensive is number one. Yes, you're right, they break because you don't know uh, how they're going to last. Thirdly, Apple don't make one. <gasps> Apple make one, then they're going to kick off. Don't worry when they do. I, I don't like that. Claim I, to be I don't the like first that innovators in that market. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't like that fact. But we all. But unfortunately, that's the way it works. Yeah. They are the trendsetters, and you know, there's lots of eye sheep out there, you know. So that's what it is. Um, and they are expensive, and ironically, I find it interesting actually. If you're going to get a small screen, the way to do it is to get a flip phone because the, you know, they're the front cover screen on that, like the Galaxy uh, Z Fold 5, you know, that you can actually use the phone entirely. Z flip from whatever z flip <laughs> well you said you said yeah, z fold. fold yeah i, I said, did get that wrong i said z flip so the fold yeah, is so the big one the flip is the flip phone okay yeah 
Right. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. I, I, and I have seen people go, ooh, you know, when there's been someone's yep. had one going, oh, that looks really nice. It looks because really it's cool. something different, something exactly. interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not the same black slab of glass. It's and metal, literally you know? like that. I, Steve from my other shows, he's got the the Z fold, and it's literally just stretched. It's it's the same sort of uh, image stretched sideways with a little bit of yeah. trickery with the fonts and all that, but there's no real magic to it. It's not like well, it's... From my understanding, there are several applications in the Play Store that just simply won't work on, on that screen yeah. because of um, the resolution on it. So yeah. you are making a trade-off there, but I can still see why people would make it because like, my wife is interested in one, um, but um, the whole thing, because she spends all of her time on her phone, I mean... Her phone is. I heard is the you way say that, that she gets news. It's the way that yeah. she, she takes in entertainment. So why wouldn't she want a larger screen that she can then fold up and then put in her pocket? I heard you say that the other day, and I thought that was really interesting because my wife is the same way. Where she is usually pretty averse to technology in general, but a smartphone, and and this is the same thing I see with older people too. Where I remember. 15 years ago, if I were to pull out my phone during a dinner or something like that, it would have been the height of rudeness. And now, you know, you go to a restaurant (laughs) and like everybody's on their phone or the, or the restaurants encouraging you to scan a QR code to read their menu or, you know, whatever the case is. But yeah, phones have just, that, that technology has literally attached itself to our brains. Like there's something about that form factor, the interaction with the UI touchscreen, the, the, the weight of it. Like, I don't know what it is, but as a species, it has entirely like just I am latched itself. Much more likely to forget my wallet at home than I am to forget my phone at home. Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's very hard to like survive now, actually. I mean, this might, yeah. I don't want to sound, uh, uh, a bit dramatic, but you know, try to do anything now without a smartphone. Flipping heck, you know, even if you're going into yeah. uh, to go and get a meal, you know, you're yep, often it's... paying with your phone, oh, or you're and, and ordering from who... your table, or you know, a- anything. You're ordering a taxi. You need a taxi. The the Uber, tap whatever. tap tap with your phone to pay thing is much more yeah. popular on your side of the pond than it is over here. Uh, I it just is started coming. Doing oh, I love it. It, yep. it is coming here. But yep. it is a much, much more slow rollout. I just started using yeah NFC stuff, and I, so Wawa is a is a store near me, um, all down the East Coast, and they do you can pay for your gas, you put in the pump number uh, on their app, and then that goes through Google Pay on your phone. Then you go in to get a cup of coffee, and you self check out on <laughs> on their on their screen, and then you put it you know hold up your rewards barcode and then you pay with you know and it's all just through the phone and i was resistant to that for a long time but i'll tell you what now not having to pull my wallet out and rip a card out stand in line while some idiots buying lottery tickets and printing it yeah exactly (laughs) i mean i'm in and out in five minutes and it's beautiful anything that makes me not have to wait into a line yeah, uh, but it is helpful on those occasions when i have forgotten my wallet that i have the google pay set up and all i have to do is that yep. is a real life scenario right there. 
And honestly, there is that there is a level of security. And I've tried to tell my wife this because she's like, well, I could just tap the credit card. You know, and I, and I said, yeah, I understand that. They, they do have the chip that you can do that. But I have to actually authenticate to my phone in whatever way I've chosen to get to Google Pay. And even then, I have a secondary authentication set up. Yeah, exactly. And so I feel much more secure with having with using a device to make that transaction than I do with a credit card. But, you know, I think that's probably going to take a while for people to sort of get over. I mean, you know, you go to the grocery store and you still see some people writing a check. And it's just, we've got this long trail of like where we started and, you know, where technology is taking us. But um, I could spend literally hours and hours and hours talking about this oh and i could um, I, I could definitely talk about the the differences between overseas and here and how quickly phone technology moves into well how slowly phone technology moves into the u.s because yeah i was in a foreign country text messaging in in, in 1999 2000 and then you get back to the u.s and it didn't really pick up here for another like four or five years hmm yeah. There are some states I've read and I know some insurance companies that are wanting to go to digital identification. And I think right. was uh Steve was it Cook? Yeah, Steve Cook. He's need the one that's now the CEO of uh, Apple. Tim Cook. Tim Cook. Yeah. T- Tim, Tim Cook. Cook, Steve. Okay. I knew there was a Cook in there. Yeah. I was thinking cuz there was the two Steves, Waz and uh and jobs, but anyways, they had made a mention about the uh, secure enclave that's uh, in the iPhones, and that Android doesn't have something like that per se, but they do support on-device encryption. I've never tried using it, but I thought because one of you had mentioned, it's like I think it was Joe um, said you're more apt to forget your wallet than you forget your phone. And that is so true because, like, I when I went to Home Depot to buy that coax to make to uh, move my uh, cable modem, I'm so used to uh, getting my phone out and and the lady in the self checkout because my Home Depot, if it's during the day, you're going to see people, but if it's later in the evening, they're not going to have. It's like any. nobody works there. Yeah, it's like. <laughs> The home, I know. And, and there's certain things they have to do. Like I had this cut slip, and it says for you know fifty five or whatever it was feet at twenty cents a feet. Here, calculate this. And I'm, I handed it to her, and I said, "How do I do this?" And she goes, "Oh, you don't do this. We have to do this." But mm. she's like, "Okay, you're done, dear." And I'm like, I pull up my phone, and she goes, "Oh no, we we can't do that here." And I'm like, "Oh, what?" She's like, yeah, everybody's like, you mean, and there are people that are so used to the phone. They're like, that like a couple of times people were kind of irritated because they had to go back to their car, get their wallet or purse or whatever, yeah. come back in the store. Or they say, well, I can't buy this and just hand it to them and walk out of the store. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> but yeah, that's, yeah. I don't know about, because uh, what was it? Uh, What's that podcast on the Twitch Twitch network um, or Twit network? Um, oh, I'm blanking on the name. All about but, Android. 
What uh, for what? Uh, you you got to tell it. Give us more than just the Twitter. Oh, because there's <laughs> Twitter has so many shows. <laughs> oh, that's right. Look, I was opening up my podcast attic. Um, not what about it? Um, they because they canceled that unfortunately. Yeah, what about Android? They canceled it. Yeah. Um, let me see here. Let me. But it's uh, the guy from uh, Linux Journal, the guy that used to be the editor in chief. He's doing the uh, the, oh, po- um, the podcast now. He took over from the guy that wrote Pearl, but he right. had a little not not write Pearl, but he did a lot of books on on Pearl. But he had a little problems Can't with uh, getting arrested because of uh, of doing a uh, pen testing that went wrong. I, I can't remember I can't remember his name, but he was the it's ho- Doc Doc Searles, I think is who you're trying to think yeah, of. Yeah, Doc Searles, because the other guy was the host for like a good decade. Yeah, and I can't think of the um the show what it's called. Anyway. I will mm-hmm. look you you keep talking, I'll look. Go ahead. But uh are you gonna look for me? Okay. Yes. And uh so they were talking about uh this thing called self-sovereign identity where it's probably um, about the only use for like blockchain that's actually usable um, or even that isn't a grift <laughs> yeah or or self-signed um, sort of like the PGP or um, like SSH keys where you have the public key and the private key and they're saying that and this is going to get the dander up on a lot of people that for security money, but one of the ideas that they're having is you have your private key and you submit the public key to the government or whatever. And like if you go in to buy alcohol and you want to say, I'm over 21, well, everyone on this stream, there's no doubt that we're over 21. So... But it's sort of like the NFC type system where they're saying, yeah, you want to prove your identity? Just scan this and it compares your hash with their hash. And they're going, yep, yep, that's Dale. Yeah, there's no doubt that that that's him. So, yeah, that's uh, Flo- Floss Weekly. Floss called, Weekly, yeah. yes. Yeah, it's good. They 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 talk about some good stuff on there, good uh, open source and you know stuff like that. So, so but yeah, it's going to get to the point where the uh, the phone is going to be the most important device you'll ever have if they, well, if this I, comes I, to fruition. I think at some point it'd be fun to talk about, and I I know we're getting really long winded here, and we should wrap it up, but uh, we should the 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 idea of if you would have asked the government, you know, like the security agency, the NSA. Let's say, what would you, you know, would you like to track all of your citizens? Would you like them to voluntarily carry around a device that has GPS in it and cell towers and can basically tell you where they are at any time? Oh, and oh, by the way, yeah, that has microphones and cameras and every transaction they make, every communication to their friends and family and conspirators. Uh, How does that sound to you? That'd be like... Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's what we all do voluntarily today. And, you know, it's a trade-off we make. But anyway, that would be a fun topic for another time. It would. We need and, to wrap and, it up. <laughs> yes, I don't think it's a good thing that uh, Majid stepped out of the room because 
you want to talk about the place that would probably test this. And I'm only saying this because they've already have the infrastructure in place is, and I've heard from other Brits that as soon as you enter the city center and obviously Majid would be able to tell you where this actually is in the greater area of London, that they have so many security cameras where you can yeah. walk from one edge of London to the other edge of London and you would never be not on camera. I know that's a double negative, but hey. It, it is a topic I'd love to talk to over <laughs> about, like why they allowed that to happen. Because I would think that a lot of them would have said, and I'm sure there was a lot of think of the children and terrorism and all of that sort of stuff mixed well, in there. There's also the whole, you shouldn't expect privacy in a public place, so let's put up yeah, cameras. That's true, but also should you expect facial recognition and tracking and... Probably not when they mining. installed the cameras. Yeah, so. Anyway, Bill, what are we doing, man? Uh, let's move on. Housekeeping and announcements. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mintcast. If you see something you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Mintcast subreddit. Chat with us on Telegram and Discord. Or post directly at https colon slash slash mintcast.org. Next episode will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Sunday, October 1st. 2023 and there's a link in the show notes to get that converted to your time zone next roundtable live stream will be 2 p.m u.s central time on saturday october 7th 2023 and there's a link to get that converted to your time zone in the show notes live stream information is at mentcast.org slash live stream wrapping up joe where can we find more of you well, I'm on a couple other podcasts. I'm on the Linux Link Tech Show, which is at tllts.org. I'm on the Linux Lugcast, linuxlugcast.com. Eric's been there a couple of times now. Um, you can send me an email directly, jb at mincast.org, or buy me a coffee on Kofi. Moss wasn't able to be here with us today. Um, if you want to catch him, he's on Full Circle Weekly News. Links in the show notes, Distro Hopper's Digest. Bardmoss at pm.me. Um, he's on Mastodon at uh, Zyvala at hostux.social. And his other contact information can be found at itsmoss.com. Bill? Uh, you can email me, bill at mintcast.org. I'm bill underscore h on Discord. I'm at wchauser3 at fostadon.org on Mastodon. Also, check out my two other podcasts, Linux OTC and 3 Fat Truckers. Links to both of those in the show notes. Majid? Hi. So you can get a hold of me by emailing me on drmajid at mintcast.org. I'm on Atypical Doctor on the social platform formerly known as Twitter and now known as X or whatever. What's that um, now? Who knows? <laughs> Uh, Atypical Doctor on Instagram and Threads and the Atypical Anesthesiologist podcast on Spotify. Links in the show notes. And I'm a company man. Just email me, eric at mintcast.org. Sorry. And you can email me at dale underscore cdl at pm.me 
and I am Dale underscore CDL on Telegram and Discord, and I am a co-host on the Distro Hoppers Digest podcast. In case you were wondering, Dale, in fact, has a CDL. It's there in his name, folks. Come on, stay with us. Before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Uh, probably me for our audio editing, archive.org for hosting our audio files, Hopstar for our logo, InitRD for the animated Discord logo, Londoner for our time sinks, and very various other contributions that cannot be oversaid, um, and my, myself for hosting the server, which runs our website, website maintenance, and the NextCloud server on which we host our show notes and raw audio. Last but not least, the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mint.